Welcome to Jane Unchained, featuring best-selling author, TV journalist, and JaneUnchained.com founder, Jane Velez Mitchell. In the next few minutes, you'll hear a secret solution to the problems that plague our world. If you want to revolutionize your life, get truly joyful, and jump to the next phase of human evolution, all it takes is one simple choice. Now, here's your host, Jane Velez Mitchell. I am so honored and delighted to have with us today one of my heroes, Wayne Shung, the co-founder of Direct Action Everywhere, is truly, I would say, the most courageous person I know. Uh, He is willing to risk literally decades in prison to rescue animals from horrific factory farm conditions, from slaughterhouses, and to wake the world up about what's really happening. Because what's really happening is an abomination. It is a shame on humanity that we're allowing this to happen. And the industry that raises, tortures, and kills 80 billion animals globally every year is trying to silence him particularly because he is so effective. So Wayne, I know you are facing trial. First of all, tell us about the trial you just faced in North Carolina, the outcome, you were found guilty, but here you are talking to me, so you're not in prison. Tell us about it. It, it was a fascinating experience. This is a trial relating to the removal of a baby goat from a goat meat farm in Western North Carolina. We had on two occasions found very sick and in one case, completely immobile baby animals at a fairly small scale commercial animal farm. And there have been many reports of animal cruelty to the authorities in Western North Carolina by an animal rescue group that I knew very well from Brother Wolf Animals, an amazing crew of folks run by a nurse. They've always gone completely ignored, especially when it came to farm animals. I mean, even dogs and cats are totally neglected in our society and usually not given the rights and protection they deserve. But when it comes to a goat, a a cow, a pig, I mean, the police just laugh you off. So we decided we'd take direct action and try and find out what's going on in these places, check it out. And both times we went, we found very sick and distressed animals. So the first time we went, we found a baby goat was collapsed on the ground. There was a pile of feces right next to him, which is unusual. Most animals don't like sleeping and lying in their own feces. Uh, despite the fact that we were strangers to him, he could not even stand up and try and get away. He was covered with lice. He had a big distended belly. If you've seen images from places in human society where kids are starving to death, you've probably have seen these kids are starving but still have fat bellies from all the parasites. And this is after the baby goat. So we, we took him to the, an animal shelter. He got the care he deserved and, uh, you know, he survived because of that. And the second time we did this, we decided, given there'd been no response, we need to create more attention and publicity around this. So we actually live streamed the entire experience. We went in not knowing what we find and we found a baby goat with pneumonia. And after we took him out, um, a couple months later, I came back to Asheville, North Carolina to speak at a vegan fest. I got pulled off an airplane, arrested, charged with two felonies and a trial. Just a couple months ago, I was convicted of those two felonies. I think in no small part because the judge gagged us from speaking about the animal cruelty we saw at the farm before we entered to take that baby goat out. So that's kind of where we are today. Wow. Absolutely extraordinary. And I have to say, Wayne, when I 
found out about all these trials that you were facing, I actually said to you, you don't want to go to prison. And you said, if I have to, I will, because that's one of the ways historically through history that people, um, whether it's Nelson Mandela or Gandhi, have woken people up to what's really going on. However, there's a caveat. If, if they won't let you talk about the issue, which is their latest strategy, then how do you use that leverage, that suffering that you experience in behind bars, if that happens ever, I hope it doesn't, how do you leverage that to tell the story to the world? We're fighting in, in the court of law, obviously, in these cases, but the real fight is in the court of public opinion. The reason we're doing these actions, the reason we're willing to bring these cases to trial is because we know when people find out that, for example, I face racketeering charges, I've had FBI agents <laughs> crossing state lines chasing after baby pickets we've rescued, that I'm potentially cumulatively facing decades in prison across all the different criminal cases that have been brought against me merely for trying to take sick and injured animals to the vet. People are profoundly disturbed by the misuse of government resources, <laughs> uh, the absurdity of the penalties involved, and honestly, most importantly, just the idea that animals in distress are not being protected. Because you know what we're doing with what we call open rescue, and this tactic is a tactic called open rescue, where you go into rescue animals from places where they're being abused by commercial establishments. You don't hide your face at all because you want the world to see exactly who you are and why you're doing it. What we're doing with these actions is, you know, just common sense morality. And there's this concept in political philosophy called the banality of evil that oftentimes the most horrific atrocities in human history occur not because of the malice of bad people, but because of the ignorance of good people, the inaction of good people. And it's very easy when everyone around you is saying this is just a normal practice, this is totally lawful, it's acceptable, to allow even absurdly evil things to unfold. I mean, we've seen this with police brutality where law enforcement departments across the country Cops will watch one of their coworkers beat someone to death or kill someone or shoot someone and suffer no consequences because there's a blue wall of silence. We've seen this in context of historical injustices throughout history. You know, So my family's from China, and there was a, a period during World War II where hundreds of thousands of Chinese civilians were being murdered by Japanese soldiers. And it was largely because, not because all the Japanese soldiers were evil, but because the 5% who were evil were not stopped by the 95% who saw what was happening and said, this seems kind of messed up, but on the other hand, this is my boss, or this is just kind of what happens in war. So what, what we're trying to do is say, look, no one who sees what's happening, even in a slaughterhouse, set aside factory farms, just even in a slaughterhouse, that's a small scale slaughterhouse. You see a baby sheep, a lamb, a little lamb, or a baby goat crying and screaming as she's ripped from her mother's um, pen and then taken off to slaughter and killed for flesh you're going to be horrified by it. this is why we have to look away and what we i think really want to do when we see this and, and this is a childhood intuition we have i think from the day we're born is to help those animals and, and that's all we're doing and and so you know i think one of the things we're trying to do is just go out there into the world and and almost make one of these cases a test case do the people of america really want to punish animal rescuers? Or do they want to support animal rescue and create accountability for the animal abusers? Now, what I would hope is that when you go to trial in Utah 
And I would like to ask you how many decades in prison you are facing potentially that the New York Times and the Washington Post and CNN and ABC News and NBC News and MSNBC in particular would be there. Uh, you've gotten great coverage from extraordinary journalists like Glenn Greenwald of The Intercept. The Guardian mm -hmm. is animal friendly. Um, Wired did a great story on you. Yeah, um, yeah. But those big, the big guys, mm -hmm. where are they? How come they are ignoring you? And how do we get them? Because if they covered your trial, if they ask for cameras in the courtroom, I've been in many, many courtrooms where the hearing about whether cameras are going to be in, in the courtroom is the most important hearing of all. Because yeah. journalists don't want to do sketches. News media doesn't want to do sketches. They want to see the action. If there's cameras in the courtroom, bingo, a reporter gets assigned. If there's no cameras in the courtroom, eh, it's hard to tell the story. Next. Yep. So tell us about that whole media landscape and how you are uh, incredibly effectively using all sorts of incredible techniques to get attention. But that big breakthrough that you deserve um, doesn't, I, I don't know how you're going to achieve it, but I, I know if you put your mind to it, you will. <laughs> We're still going to make our best effort. And I'll say three things about that one of which is very negative. The other two are a little more positive. But the first is the media landscape, as you know, has become incredibly concentrated. <laughs> There's a small number of corporations, all of which are obsessively concerned with advertising because advertising is the name of the game. There are there's very little subscription-based content out there. I mean, you have a couple outlets that have been able to fund themselves through subscriptions like the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, but everyone else is relying on advertising through social media or otherwise. And that means, and because advertising, the advertising industry and, and the companies that advertise have also become very concentrated, it means it's basically an oligopoly over the entire communications infrastructure of the United States. You know, there's mm -hmm. five technology companies that control almost all of the communications infrastructure, the mm -hmm. social media platforms, the video platforms, and you've got a couple of dominant media companies, ABC, CBS, NBC, the New York Times, that are controlling the actual content being created. I'll just give you an example. The first time we did an open rescue investigation, um, we we investigated a Whole Foods egg farm for the first time, I think, in American history. No one had looked into one of these certified humane, cage-free, humane, free-range egg farms. And this is a farm that, look at the packaging. It looked like a it looked like some sort of animal sanctuary. It looked like a <laughs> like a because there was a little girl with a chicken outside in a grassy field, and she's like petting the chicken. And you think to yourself, wow, this is so great. I mean, these chickens, they're being treated like better than my dog gets treated. She gets this nice grassy field. There's a little girl who pets her all day. And you almost feel like you're donating to an animal welfare nonprofit when you bought their eggs. What do we find when we go into the farm? It's a factory farm, just like all the rest. Thousands and thousands. I think each of the sheds had around 10,000 chickens crammed and industrial sheds covered in feces. We found animals trapped in their own feces, you know, collapsed on the ground, sick and dying, starving to death, losing all their feathers. And when we went to the New York Times, they did cover it. But shockingly, even though we created an 18 minute documentary video that I think was very high quality, uh, they didn't actually even link to our video in the coverage, but they did link to the company's video which showed idyllic conditions that were completely contrary to the way the animals were actually being raised. And you might ask, why did this happen? Well, when we looked into it, we realized that just a few weeks before our investigation dropped, 
Whole Foods had made one of the largest media buys in the history of the New York Times, a $20 million investment into advertising, because they know like the urban, liberal, wealthy, privileged class of people reading the New York Times are also going to Whole Foods buying these eggs. I'm not even saying that there is any corruption involved or there is like an explicit quid pro quo. And I know a lot of these companies in theory are putting up a firewall between their advertising and their content departments. But the reality is that often doesn't hold up. And the folks who are running the show understand that at the end of the day, we have to pay the bills. We have to be able to pay our reporters. We have to be able to put up our websites. And we can't do that if we don't get advertisers. So the problem is narratives that are getting out from the public on mainstream media are largely being filtered through these corporate channels because large corporations, media companies, food companies like Costco, and technology companies like Amazon, which are becoming all encompassing corporations to do everything. Amazon is one of the biggest food retailers in the country because it owns Whole Foods and it ships to people all over the country with Amazon Fresh. Uh, I so, want to jump in a little bit because we're getting so please. many callers who want to talk to you. So let's uh, knock a few out because they've been waiting. Please. Sarah, your question or thought for Wayne Chung. Hey, oh gosh, I'm so glad to be on. Wayne, you're such an inspiration for so many people. And I wanted to ask you a question about specifically consumers that yeah. possibly don't know about this stuff. What would be one thing that consumers can do kind of today, an action item that they could take and maybe go to their grocery stores that maybe we could look out for as consumers? Thank you. Yeah, the, one of the really tough things about consumer education nowadays is we're sort of living in a post-fact world where you can find any version of reality you'd like and there's going to be a YouTube video about it. There's an enormous amount of disinformation and misinformation being put out there by corporations and sometimes by governments too. And, and I include our own government in that regard. And so it's really difficult for people to sort the, you know, the nonsense from the reality. Um, and I think the most important thing to note is when you're looking at information, always try to find out what the incentives are of the person who's providing the information. Is this a media outlet? that is getting paid advertising from corporations like Amazon and Whole Foods and Costco? Is this a, a corporation that is behind a nonprofit organization? So for example, there's this wonderful, wonderful in quotes organization called the Center for Consumer Freedom. And it has uh, another center associated, which is called the Center for Organizational Research and Education. And they sound great. It's like, oh, it's consumer freedom. It's, it's about research and education about our food system. And when you look at the incentives, you look at who's funding them, it's all big ag corporations and sometimes big tobacco too. And they're obviously not going to defy their corporate masters when they put out information about, for example, investigations like ours, it's gonna go through the corporate filter. So ask yourself what the incentives are uh, for the, the information that you're seeing that's being put out to be put out. But the last thing I'd say is like, honestly, a lot of this stuff comes down to personal trust. So if, if you want to know how your food is being grown, and, and that includes plant-based foods too, to the extent you can, go visit the farm yourself. That's the only way you're going to know. Or try to meet the people who are directly involved in it and have seen Right, So I, I think one of the reasons I hope people can trust what I say about factory farms is because I'm not working through some game of telephone where somebody told somebody else, who told somebody else, who wrote an article from Guardian that I then read, and I'm reporting to you 
four steps from the direct source. When I say that factory farms are hell holes, that their nightmares come to life, I am saying this from personal experience. I am saying this from having seen birds cannibalizing each other on factory farms. I'm saying this from having seen mother pigs smashing their heads against metal bars because they're trapped in cages so small they cannot turn around to look their own babies in the eye. Right. So these are personal experiences. This is not some sort of disinformation campaign. This is not some sort of rumor mill. This is not even exaggeration that's amplified through social media that may be well-intentioned. This is a direct personal experience I've had. And the more you can find accounts like that and information like that, I think the more trustworthy it's going to be. All right. We're going to get a couple more speakers. And by the way, any corporation mentioned during this broadcast is invited on. We would love to dialogue with you and get your response to anything and everything that's been said. Okay. Um, let's go to the next caller, Kim in Culver City. Your question or thought, Kim. Hey, thank you. Thank you, Wayne, for everything you do for the animals. And I, like many others, I'm sure, was on pins and needles watching you going into that court or whatever to get sentenced. Mm -hmm. I was so relieved, and I'm sure many others were, that, you, you know, you weren't sentenced to prison. But then later I heard you say you were kind of disappointed, kind of wanted, I don't know, you, I don't know if you wanted to be, you know, sentenced to prison. I'm just wondering, what was that about? Where, where did that come from? Thank thanks, you. Kim. Yeah, thanks for that comment, Kim, and, and, I'm, and thanks for the support. I appreciate it. Um, I mean, I was on pins and needles, too. It was a scary moment. And I, I definitely don't want to go to prison. It's, it's, it's not a pleasant place to go. And if you've been reading in, in the papers recently, especially with COVID-19 and short staffing, there's been a spate of violence in state and federal prisons across the country that's been really pretty disturbing. Um, so it's not a pleasant place, and I, I certainly don't relish the idea of going to prison. The concern I had is long periods of probation, in some cases, can be even worse in prison. So, for example, a lot of your basic civil liberties that all of us take for granted, like freedom of association, right? You're allowed to, if Jane wants to go hang out with her friend Donnie in New York City, and everyone should go hang out with Donnie in New York City because he's a great guy, and everyone should hang out with Donnie. Everyone should hang out with Jane, too, because Jane's amazing as well. She's just allowed to do that. And the government's not allowed to tell her, no, you can't hang out with Tom. That's like a basic civil liberty we take for granted. When you're on probation, that liberty no longer exists. Your probation officer can tell you that you don't have the freedom to associate with people. And this has happened. This is not speculative. In the history of the animal rights movement, when the Shack 7 were sentenced in the mid-2000s, even after they got out of prison. So first of all, they all had awful and extended prison sentences. There's a documentary called Animal People about it, a book called Greenies and You Read about it. For completely nonviolent actors, they had just posted stuff on a website. Some of the stuff was not the most tactful. Some of it was stuff that I certainly wouldn't have posted, but it was still just posting on a website about an animal research facility called Hunting and Life Sciences. Each of them was sentenced between one and seven years, so extended prison sentences. And when they got out, they couldn't actually even talk to each other for years, not even talk to each other, right? So it's not only does this break social movements, it breaks the human condition because some of your closest friends you're not even allowed to talk to. So. I think folks don't understand how onerous even probation can be. Uh, and they also watch it very carefully. You've got to report in to probation officers, sometimes once a week, sometimes once a month. Uh, I'm not concerned about a lot of aspects of that. Drug testing doesn't matter to me. I don't do any drugs. I don't even drink. I've never smoked a cigarette or drank a drink in my life. But the other conditions were very concerning to me. But the, the, other, the other aspect that I thought was really important to me is, you know, I, I've actually never been in prison. Um, 
And I think one of the reasons is because when prosecutors and judges and juries meet us, even if they feel that we've technically broken law, the judge and the prosecutor in this case, I think by the end of it, they gagged us, they convicted us. They also ultimately concluded we are good people. And this is just not my speculation. I had conversations with the DA who was prosecuting us. I gave him a hug after we hugged each other. And he said, you know, like, I understand why you're doing what you're doing. I think you're good people, even though I think you broke the law. Um, and I think there's something really powerful about sacrificing and showing your solidarity with animals by suffering a little in their stead or, or in solidarity with them. And I think there's, you know, in so many activist circles and just political circles more generally, we're always looking to find influence and in, in network among the most powerful, right? Let's go find the celebrities, the rich, the influential. Um, and I found both with animals and human beings that sometimes the most important insights come from being around the most vulnerable. I don't think I will ever fully understand what it's like to live in a factory farm, to be a mother pig in a gestation crate or uh, a chicken in a factory farm or in a battery cage. But I do know that the brief experiences I've had in jail have been pretty transformative for me in understanding just a tiny bit what it's like to be an animal, human or non-human, frankly, who's living in a cage. Um, and so my hope was, you know, that if I go through that experience, there's some redemptive quality to it, that I learned something from that experience and I can relate to the animals more deeply. And it just motivates even more to get all animals out of cages. Wow. When so I get out. powerful. Uh, we have so many callers. We're going to get through two more callers. And then I have a lot of questions for you. Lindsay, yeah. your question or thought for Wayne. Hi, Wayne. I'll keep it really brief because there's so many people waiting to talk to you. I just mm -hmm. wanted to say that I'm, when I first became vegan, you were one of the inspirations for me that really mm -hmm. fired me up to want to to do something for the animals. And it's just listening to your story is so, it's just so touching and incredible. And I just wanted to say thank you. I mean, words, mm -hmm. I can't really express how I feel. And I just wanted to thank you so much for what you do and being a leader for us. Thank you. Oh, wow, mm -hmm. Lindsay, I feel the same way. Uh, when I've gone to DXE protests in San Francisco and seen the extraordinary things that you've pulled off, so visual, so compelling, and then see that the media did not cover it. I, I yeah. have the dubious honor, and I wish I didn't, of saying that uh, our nonprofit news network was the only one who covered mm -hmm. your incredible die-in at the San Francisco Ferry Building, which was mm -hmm. one of the most visually stunning things I've ever seen. and crickets from the media and it, it sadly it's true you almost have to go out there and get arrested or go naked to get mainstream media coverage and then you're ridiculed and criticized so it's it's a no-win situation which is precisely why we started our nonprofit news organization to do an end run around mainstream media and why we now have a uh, streaming network that uh is global and uh that is our way of trying to get the truth out because you're absolutely right. There are information blockers and they're advertiser based and the advertisers are primarily meat, dairy and pharmaceuticals. So do, you don't have to have somebody come in your office and knock and say, all you have to do is look at the commercials to know where your um, <laughs> paycheck comes from. All right. One more caller, Tom in Chicago, your question or thought for Wayne. Hi, Jane. Thanks for taking my call. Hi, Wayne. Thank you so much. I want to thank you for all the work you're doing. It's really amazing, and thank you. 
Um, realistically, I would love to see KFO shut down tomorrow. I think everyone that listens to this show will agree we don't need it. The sad realization is that global warming is real. Animal agriculture is arguably your biggest cause to that. I don't think the animal agriculture energy is going to go away, but it needs to be modified so it is sustainable because people will always eat meat and so forth. We know this already. Uh, in your opinion, how can this industry be, be modified so it's no longer destroying the planet we live on? Thank you so much for taking my call. You guys have a great day. Thank you. Thank you, Tom. Well, first of all, I believe, and I love you, Tom. You're one of our favorite uh, viewers, but I believe that's a false assumption. I believe that very strongly that the actual false assumption underlying almost all of our problems in society is the assumption that we have to eat animals, that we have to wear animals, and that we have to use animals in laboratories. And it's a false assumption. And once that false assumption is removed, everything's going to fall in place because nature is ultimately harmonious. And um, I know that there are so many things happening technologically um, to um, bring forth meat alternatives that taste just like meat and cell-based meat. I want to ask you about that. Um, as Nelson Mandela said, it always seems impossible till it's done. But when we see the technology converging with the kind of uh, information you're providing to the public, how soon do you think before we reach the tipping point? You know, I, 10 years ago, I predicted it would be one generation, about 40 years, and which I thought was incredibly optimistic. But in many ways, <laughs> the timeline of progress has moved much more quickly than even I expected. And I, back when I said, we'll see a world where animals are no longer used for food, for research, for, for, for their skins within 40 years, a lot of people laughed at me and said, this is ridiculous. I mean, we can barely even get people to look at the factory farm footage <laughs> or stop going to McDonald's, much less complete, create a completely vegan world. But one indication of this is we actually, when we started Direct Action or set out a strategic roadmap, just said, all right, let's let's just try and envision. So let's envision a world where animals are treated as living creatures of rights. And let's walk through the steps strategically we think would have to be taken to get there and, and set a timeline to try and achieve those steps. Um, we had as our goal 2025, to achieve significant state legislation to ban an animal product that had never been banned before. That occurred in 2019, folks. <laughs> so six years before our timeline, um, we banned the sale of fur across the entire state. And, and I was shocked, I was stunned. And the reality is, it's exactly as Jane said, not just of media, but of politics. It's driven by the grassroots. It's driven not by the mainstream institutions and establishments. There were some incredibly effective NGOs and helpful NGOs that helped the grassroots campaign. HSUS was involved, you know, um, PETA was involved, all these big nonprofit organizations. But this is ultimately a, a struggle of the grassroots. It was thousands of ordinary people in the state of California who had seen those awful lead gold traps where some poor coyote or fox or even a dog is, is sitting there in agony for days, gnawing his own leg because he's, he's starving to death in the freezing cold because a leg old trap has grabbed his leg. They had seen these photos. They had seen these videos. They heard these stories. And they realized, I am not going okay with a world where this is unfolding in the state of California. And so we banned it with that powerful narrative and that storytelling with grassroots power. Um, so I agree with Jane completely that we can't moderate this industry and we can't reform this industry. It, it does have to have, it has to be completely transformed. Um, and I think when you look at the indicators, when you look at 
not just the political legislation that's being proposed across the nation. You know, the factory farm moratorium that's proposed at the, the federal level uh, by Cord Booker, uh, the state level um, factory farm moratorium legislation that just got. I don't know if you even heard about this, Jane, but on Friday, there's a state legislator DHC was working with who introduced a factory farm moratorium bill in the state assembly that if it passes, there'll be new, no new CAFO construction. You look work that Bruce Friedrich is doing, the Good Food Institute, and the fact that we have a vegan burger in, or you know, debatably vegan, but a, a plant-based burger for sure, that every Burger King in the entire nation that's absurd. Like Jane and I can tell you, as having been vegan and vegetarian for quite some time, that like the idea that every Burger King in the nation would have a plant-based burger, even a few years ago, would have been laughed at. And it's a reality today. So I, I always just go back to this study by a Harvard a psychologist named Dan Gilbert called the end of history illusion. And, and the idea is this, that when we look at history, both at the political level and individually, you know, we see change like we've seen the 1960s were not the same as the 1970s which are not the same as the 80s which is not the same as the 90s and they're certainly not the same as the 20, 2020s right we live in a world that's very different than the world that martin luther king worked in or the world that susan b anthony worked in in the late 19th century and the early 20th century yet when we look into the future human beings have a tendency to always think that things are going to stay the same <laughs> we think we've reached the end of history <laughs> the reality is change is nature and nature has changed. And that's true of the human species as well. So this change is coming. It's just a question of when. And my guess is if it comes, it's going to come faster than almost anybody thinks. I, I think partly due to climate change, partly due to public health risks, but partly because I think the moral conscience of this nation and this planet will be awakened as more and more people learn about what's happening to animals. Uh, I agree with you 100%. I feel that business is already changing. JBS, mm -hmm. one of the biggest meat producers in the world, has a vegan line that's certified vegan. I yeah. tasted it. It's delicious. Uh, Tyson's uh, leader, and they're yeah. the other, another one of the largest meat producers, has said words to the effect of the future of food uh, could be meatless. Um, yeah. there, there is a growing acknowledgement that for climate change reasons, for habitat destruction, wildlife extinction, uh, human health reasons, obviously, uh, heart disease is uh, America's leading killer pandemic aside, and that's generally caused by eating cholesterol, which is only in animal products. Um, you know, there are so many reasons, but yet the U.S. government, in my personal opinion, is the linchpin holding this up. The U.S. government subsidizes animal agriculture to the tune of something like $38 billion a year. And the farm yeah. bill is coming up in 2023. Yeah, 2023 so yeah. um, to me, you see business changing. You see McDonald's right now in 600 restaurants in the United States is testing out a vegan burger. Um, I believe and pray that that will go nationwide uh, and then global. So the businesses seem to be changing. The cell-based meat is getting tremendous uh, money for innovation to reduce the, the economies of scale so that the the chicken nuggets that were served, the cell-based chicken nuggets that were sold in Singapore at a restaurant could be ubiquitous. So what's holding it back is the U.S. government subsidies of this industry. Yeah. And the Biden administration recently said that uh, they're going to give a billion dollars to create more slaughterhouses, moving in yeah. the opposite direction 
ignoring the environmental impact of animal agriculture. So what do we do about that? Because we can focus on industry, but really, in my opinion, analyzing this, and I could be wrong, but it's the U.S. government that's holding up this entire industry, propping it up. Yeah. Yeah, you're absolutely right, Jane. And unfortunately, that's a bipartisan consensus that both Democrats and Republicans alike support farming. And part of that has to do with the just curious aspects of the American political system. For example, Iowa and, and New Hampshire and, uh, and South Carolina are among the, the first primary or caucus states in the presidential elections. And every year, all the presidential candidates go to Iowa and go to all the factory farmers and kowtow to them and beg for their votes because they think that the only way I'm going to become president is if I get the farming vote. Um, it has to do with the fact that this is a country of farmers, even 100 years ago. I think around the turn of the century in 1900, one half of Americans were not just affiliated in some way with the farming business, they actually lived on a farm. So one in two Americans lived on a farm. Now it's like 1%, right? So you go back a few hundred years beyond that to 1776 when this country was founded, all the founding fathers were farmers, like every single one of them. Every single one of them had like some sort of plantation or farm or something like that, because this is a farming country. So back then in 1776, and even in 1900, the business of America was the business of farming. The, the well-being of American was the well-being of farmers because every American was a farmer. That's changed dramatically. That has changed very dramatically to the point that it's around 1%, maybe top 2%, depending on how you define agricultural workers or affiliative agriculture. And the percentage are involved in animal agriculture is even lower. Yet still, to this day, both Democratic and Republican elected officials support factory farms and monocrop agriculture of various sorts to the tune of tens of billions of dollars every year. It's, it's probably the most subsidized system, corporate system in the nation, um, competitive with the military industrial complex. And, but here's the opportunity. Um, thoughtful critics and thoughtful voices in both the Democratic and Republican parties who actually look at this situation and see that, wait a minute, we're giving tens of billions of dollars in subsidies to companies like Smithfield and JBS and Tyson. This is not some yeoman family farmer, like a guy with a straw hat and a, a little girl on his lap. This is a huge mega corporation that's literally shipping in slaves from Asia to work in their factory farm in Utah. But it's not an exaggeration. That actually happened at Circle Four Farms, one of the farms we invested I, I, in. I have to say, for legal reasons, I can't independently confirm any of that. Um, and sure. we invite anybody you mention on, and maybe we stick to the issues you're talking about. In general, okay. I have not, no, not I have no well, I knowledge of what it. you just said at all. Okay. Yeah. Well, it's it's been in the Salt Lake City Tribune and the Desiree yeah. Times, right. so it's, it's okay. been it was it was extensively reported on by multiple media outlets. What happened with Smithfield and Circuit Court? But the, the point is, the system has changed dramatically uh, in terms of its ramifications and consequences for the planet, for human beings, and obviously for animals. Yet the subsidies have the government support hasn't. Um, but the thoughtful voices, and and one example of this is uh, there's a guy in the Ezra Klein show, a, a very right wing libertarian economist named Alex. Tabarek, I think is how to pronounce his last name, but he writes for a blog called Marginal Revolution, which is one of the most prominent economics and libertarian blogs in the nation. And he was on the Ezra Klein podcast talking about how stupid all these factory farm subsidies are. Like he says, this is corporate welfare, right? So we have an opportunity if, if we're open-minded and willing to form the right coalition to unify the entire nation, not just people in urban areas, but people in rural areas too. Not just people who are Democrats, people who are Republicans too to fight against factory farms. And I think that's what we need to do. We need to point out 
how corrupt, how abusive, how problematic the system is for everyone and along many different political dimensions. It's if you're concerned about animal cruelty, obviously factory farms are awful. If you're an environmentalist, factory farms are polluting the air and the water and poisoning our people. If you're concerned about wasteful government spending, right? It's tens of billions of dollars to the farm bill being funneled to corporations that certainly don't need more profit. So there's so many different lines of argument and so many different value systems that factory farming and animal agriculture are directly in violation to. We have to be open to using all these arguments to form a coalition that can bring down the entire system. And, and you're right, I think that starts with government support. I agree 100% about uh, finding allies. They say politics makes strange bedfellows. First of all, uh, Smithfield isn't even owned American-owned company, right? Yep. Um, it's owned by a Chinese conglomerate. Yep. And White Coat Waste is uh, an organization that fights animal experimentation that has done exactly that. They have yep. used the taxpayer waste uh, mantra to get tremendous Republican support because Republicans traditionally, I mean, whatever you think about, it, I'm not talking partisan politics. I'm simply talking strategy. Um, sure. Taxpayer waste has been for as long as I've been alive. That's what you hear when you hear about Republicans talking points. So what could be more wasteful than $38 billion of our hard earned tax dollars subsidizing corporations that aren't even American owned? JBS is mm -hmm. Brazilian owned. Uh, Smithfield is ultimately Chinese owned. Um, yeah. Why are we doing this? And then it makes people unhealthy and um then we've got to subsidize all those health care costs our health care costs could which are extraordinary could drop drastically with lifestyle changes and so these arguments are not being made i was listening to this incredible book called the choice um it's a business executive who breaks down kind of like philosophy and how it intersects with business and and what he said is that invariably when a solution is found it looks obvious in hindsight mm -hmm. and that the problem with major large institutions is that they're tradition bound and they can't see what's right in front of them and part of it is that it's not explained properly it's not broken down and i've often thought this that we need to break this down like a story that anyone can understand that we're yeah. supposed to fight climate change but animal agriculture is a leading contributor that's suppressed that our health care costs are out of control that two-thirds of americans are overweight or are obese that people are dying unnecessarily of heart disease uh mm -hmm. let's leave pandemics out of it okay even for a minute um the um just all of these issues the fact that there are millions of people on the verge of starvation in afghanistan right now i read an article in the new york times that broke my heart last night of a starving child. And I, I just, I was like, what's wrong with this planet? We could live in a world of natural abundance where everybody has everything they want to eat and then some, except for the artificial scarcity that is created by meat because it takes eight to 25 pounds of grain to make one pound of steak. 75% of the soy is fed to farmed animals, but I was even talking to a congressman who is plant-based, who called me asking for a donation. And I said, we're killing 80 billion animals a year. And he said, is it really that much? He didn't know, he's ignorant. We need to, nice, 
good guy, but did not know the basic facts. We are not selling our story. What do they say? Whoever frames the debate wins the debate. One of our problems as a movement is that we are so, so damn invested in being right that we're not as strategic in terms of explaining this situation in a way where everybody goes, oh, my God, this is ridiculous. Why are we doing this? We haven't gotten there yet. And um, I want to I just I want to get that. And then I want to go back to your trial, because that is really the headline. And we're sort of burying the lead here. Go ahead. Answer those way in. Yeah, I I think you're right. It's funny. I just um, sent an email to this sociologist at Stanford named Rob Willer, Mm -hmm. who has an amazing TED talk called How to Have Better Political Conversations. He makes the point you just made. I I know you understand this, Jane, because you're in journalism for so long. You're trying to persuade, you know, on the one hand, your producers and executives at CNN to do the stories you want. And then you got to persuade your audience that the, and, you know, it's too often the case that when you're speaking or you're engaged in persuasion, you're kind of trapped in your own mindset. You're thinking about what matters to you. And I'm not saying what matters to you shouldn't be spoken. That should be said too. And that's a big part of being empowered and feeling confident in yourself. But the next stage of that is, is understanding and connecting with what your audience cares about. And Rob Willer's basic, you know, sociological theory is that one of the problems with political conversations today is we too often frame our arguments in terms of our values instead of our audience's values. And what he finds is that when you talk to a conservative about something like climate change, if you focus on values that liberals typically care about, for example, equity, you know, um, impacts on marginalized people. Then the conservatives will wave you off and say, like, ah, I don't care about all this nonsense. This is just like liberal gobbledygook. It's just you all complaining about how the world's not fair enough for you and you're not working hard enough. But on the other hand, if you talk about climate change in terms of values that conservatives generally relate to more. So, for example, purity and cleanliness, conservatives care more about these sorts of things and talk about how, wow, the world's just kind of becoming a very dirty place. You look at all the excessive precipitation damage caused by hurricanes. You look at all the particulates in the air. Then suddenly the exact same policies that conservatives generally would reject because they're considered liberal policies, they will endorse at very high rates. And the key thing is being able to explain, as you put it, the cause or the change you're trying to create in terms that your audience understands and values. So I I think that's crucial. We've got to do more of that. I want to get back to your trial. Okay, so I've covered a lot of trials, but I'm not a lawyer. You are. You defended yourself in court. You live streamed the alleged crime. Now, were you able to, look, they say the best case is one that's caught on tape, right? We're all looking for that security camera footage. Mm -hmm. You provided it to the court, to the police, you live streamed your own alleged crime, which was an open rescue. Were you able to play that footage in court? You'd think the prosecution would want to play it because it shows you doing what they are accusing you of. How did that play out? We were able to play the live stream, which is a pretty dramatic moment. There were a couple jurors, or at least one, I think, who teared up while watching it. The problem with that live stream is First of all, this is a Facebook live stream early in Facebook's days of live streaming, so the quality is very low. Um, secondly, this is all shot at night using kind of a simple iPhone camera, so it's really hard to tell what's going on because it's, you know, the the image is very blurry. It, there's low light. You know, James gave me some advice by email about how you need to have the lighting right. Anybody who knows 
video knows that lighting is really important. If you have bad lighting, if you're, you know, if you've got a, a light behind you instead of in front of you, you can't see anything. And, and we didn't have anything set up like that. This is not some sort of professional shoot. This is a, a live stream dope and rescue in the dark. So people were not able to see what we saw in terms of the condition of the animals. But more importantly, you know, there was other photographic and videographic and documentary evidence. Um, and the jury wasn't allowed to see any of those things because the judge on day one, with almost no argument at all, just decided he was going to gag any evidence relating to the condition of the goats that was that were removed from the farm. So we had a veterinary expert testify, but she had to play this delicate dance where she's testifying about abstract concepts in veterinary medicine without testifying about the specific goats that we removed. And it was it was kind of absurd. And I think the jury was just confused. Um, but notwithstanding all that, even just the fact that we got some of the abstract level stuff in, you know, just about generally what happens to animals? Generally, why are you an animal rights activist? Generally, why do you rescue animals? Without going to the specific details of the farm because the judge gagged so much of the evidence relating to the specific farm where we did this rescue. It was still enough to move a lot of people. And we, we actually did some interviews of jurors afterwards. Um, one of my attorneys or my co-counsel who wasn't actually allowed to work with me at trial because one of, one of the judge's other early rulings was if I wanted to represent myself, I could have no other attorneys at the table with me. Everyone had, it had to be me alone or else, you know, I had to just let the attorneys represent me. So, but one of those other attorneys who was not allowed to represent me at trial went and reached out to none of the jurors. And he found that most of them just thought we were good people and thought that, you know, they, 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 they thought we were doing what we thought was the right thing and, and what may very well have been the right thing, but they just felt like we had to apply the law. And I want to jump in and, and ask you about your upcoming trial because we only have a few sure. more minutes. So yeah. you're facing trial in Utah. Um, are you going to be able to play any footage or talk about why you um, did this open rescue and tell us uh, about it? Um, yeah. I know that there is also videotape of that as well. Yeah, not just videotape, but virtual reality. And Jane, last time I was at your house, I think, actually, we were, I put a virtual head reality headset on a lot of people because we went in with this prototype VR camera that a tech startup in the Bay Area lent us. And we shot it in 360 degrees so we could see everything. And because, you know, one of the things factory farmers always say, and factory farm corporations always say when we get a, a shot of some cruelties, they say, oh, this is a very narrow segment of the entire farm. If you look at the entire place, it's a beautiful, clean, very humane place. And they just pick the one piglet out of the 100,000 at this site that was hurt and injured. And so we thought, let's just show people the entire thing. Let's bring in a VR camera. And, and our hope is, and I think, you know, Wired Magazine has written about this. I talked about this on the Ezra Klein show. Our hope is that the jurors can actually put on the VR headset and walk with us into a factory farm, see exactly what we saw in 360 degrees, and therefore understand why we took those two piglets out. So it's funny you ask me this now, because this Thursday, we have probably the most important hearing in the entire trial. And this is occurring potentially months before trial, but the state, the prosecution has moved with the court to have all evidence of inhumane animal conditions or even testimony, even someone saying something about the inhumane animal conditions at Circle Four Farms, gagged from the courtroom, um, prevented from being distributed at all. And uh, there are gonna be arguments this Thursday about whether that evidence can be presented in court. And if we lose that motion, which I, God forbid we lose that because it's gonna be a devastating motion to lose and because it's, it's trampling on my basic constitutional rights. Like you, when you're a criminal defendant, you have a right to present a defense. And as I said, in North Carolina, if we can't talk about the animals, you might as well just throw us in jail now. 
So my hope is the judge does the right thing and allows us to tell the complete story of what unfolded in Utah uh, in, in early 2017. As an attorney, what are the appeals processes if it doesn't go your way? Yeah, so we're, we're doing this in North Carolina. We're going to the state appellate court and then eventually the state Supreme Court. Um, appeals are incredibly difficult <laughs> for a variety of reasons. One is just the immense caseload, which has been made even worse by COVID-19. You know, so many judges will look at cases and just try to find the easiest way out. And the easy way out usually is just to affirm. Because if you're going to overturn a lower court judge's ruling, you have to explain yourself. It creates, you know, interpersonal conflict because oftentimes you have to see these people and you're in the same social circles. and you, you have to go talk to this person whose judgment you just literally reverse. Um, and then second, just as, as a legal matter, for the most part with appeals, the standard being used on appeal is very different than the standard at trial. Like at trial, the state has to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that you have committed the crime. For an appeal, the typical standard is what's called abuse of discretion. And abuse of discretion is, is a very stringent standard that basically holds there is no reasonable basis for the lower court to reach the rulings it reached. And, and therefore, the judgment just has to be tossed out. That's a very difficult standard. Having said that, I still think we have good arguments, both in North Carolina and Utah, for a violation of the abuse of discretion standard, because the judge completely ignored not only our defenses, but the evidence we wanted to present that suggested the prosecution's case had not been proven. And again, this is a basic constitutional right that all of us have. This is one of the reasons the founding fathers fought the American Revolution, because they wanted to have a fair court system where you had basic liberties and prevention of search and seizure and an opportunity to defend yourself and confront witnesses. I'm going to jump in here and say perhaps the most important thing is to have media in the courtroom for yeah. that hearing. Like is the intercept and uh, I mean, if Ezra Klein, for example, were to attend, is this a virtual hearing? This is going to be a virtual hearing on Thursday. Okay. Yeah. All right. Mm -hmm. So is there an opportunity for media? Yeah, we, I think I think there has been a media crest granted already. Um, and I think we're putting out the press release literally right now, like in the other room. Mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> Matt Johnson, our press person, is actually sending out press releases about the hearing. Um, you know, one of the problems is like the media gets tired of stories. And this is actually the third time we've done this now because we keep changing judges, which is unfortunate. But uh, but I, I would expect there's a still pretty reasonable chance we'll get at least local media, whether we get national media well, harder. That, to say. Yeah. But I mean, if you've got national media, I, yeah. I've, again, I'm not a lawyer, but I've been in many, many courtrooms. I covered yeah. crime and uh, for years and you see the regular cases going boom, boom, boom. They send people off mm -hmm. for 10 years without blinking. Then the mm -hmm. celebrity case comes in, the media comes in, everything slows yeah, down. It slows down. Yep. Everything right. becomes important. Yeah. Judges and prosecutors are people and yeah. they know, they want to be written up the right way and they pay attention and they're more likely, I think, to consider things when they see the world is watching. And that's yeah. why, you know, I think a personal appeals to how hard is it for somebody um, to join on a Zoom personal appeals to anyone, you know, in major media to yeah. cover this, because this is the moment of truth.
This is the moment of truth. And if you can get people, I mean, I'm very impressed by Ezra Klein's reporting. He has talked about that reporting. And of course, The Intercept, The Guardian, um, Mm -hmm. all these wired, vice, vice. Yeah. Um, You know, uh, it's, this is the time where journalists um, should show up. And I would love yeah. to have that Zoom link. We'll show up and, and and check it out and watch it. And if it's public, we'll put it on. We'll 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 stream it. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know what the rules are. I, I will send you some details right after this, Jane. I appreciate that. And I think you're right. You know, it's it, it's it's a travesty that our criminal justice system works out this way. But it's true. So many people get ground up by the gears of our legal system without anyone paying any attention, even their lawyers. I mean, public defenders overstrapped. They often know almost nothing about the clients until a few moments before trial. And it's like, how do you defend a case like that? But how in our cases- How could you spend in prison in this Utah I, case? So the Utah case has changed. It used to be much, much longer, um, but partly because of media attention, Wired wrote a long feature piece. It's like a 5,000 word article, a great article by a guy named Andy Greenberg, who's a great journalist. Partly because of the media attention, I think the prosecution ultimately dropped the, the most serious charges. So we're still facing, I think, two felonies in this case. But I think the cumulative time is only like 10 years now, <laughs> only 10 years, um, when it used to be, I think, like 60. So it's a lot shorter. Wow. Um, you know, we're going to end our Voice America broadcast. Thank you. But I'd like to stay on uh, Facebook just for a minute longer because there were sure. two or three questions I wanted to ask you that I didn't get a chance to ask you because you have so many callers calling in trying to mm-hmm. um, you know, connect with you and thank you for your activism. Um, so let me ask you this. I was reading about you, Wayne. I did not know, trying to understand why you of all people are the one who says, I will go to prison. I will do mm-hmm. these things that most people would find absolutely impossible. Every time I read about you, I feel very cowardly. <laughs> <laughs> and we want to thank Voice America for their incredible coverage of mm-hmm. uh, this movement. Voice America is one of the true voices that allows us to get this information out. So thank you, Voice America, and we'll see you next time on Voice America Radio. Thank you for tuning in to Jane Unchained. We hope you'll join Jane Velez Mitchell for the next edition of her program next Monday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time and 10 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Influencers Channel. Meanwhile, have a peaceful week.